If you have your Bibles, I would like for you to turn to uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. It's been a while since I've been here last, but I always enjoy coming and seeing you folks and um, enjoy Pastor John, although he's away, but um, I had to say, he told me to say, no, I'm joking. Oh. But yeah, if you, if you would turn to Hebrews 4 and verse 14, I'm going to read the 14 through 16. Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are unworthy to eat at your table to come worship you. For you are high and holy, and we are sinful and in need of you every moment of the day. We thank you for the work of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, on our behalf, constantly pleading for us. Pray that you would help us to understand your word and help us to apply it to our lives so that we might live lives that are holy and righteous in your sight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when I was a kid, um, we would occasionally ask one of my parents for something, usually a snack or something. And when dad said no, the first move was always to try to go find mom in hopes that mom would say yes. Now, as a parent, I realize that moms and dads usually talk to one another and um, find out what the other person had said. And so that that didn't always work out too well on my behalf. But what was I hoping for? I was hoping that mom would somehow intercede for me and really let me have that brownie or whatever it was I wanted that dad told me that I was not allowed to have. I was trying to, essentially, I was trying to pit one parent against the other. But here, when we come to uh, Hebrews chapter 4, the author to the, he- to the Hebrews is developing, starting to develop the theme of Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than everything that had come out. Not only is he greater, he's not just saying this is the new and improved version. What he's saying is that Jesus is the final culmination of all the promises that God had made in the Old Testament. Everything that the Israelites had been hoping for finds its fulfillment and its culmination in Jesus, who is the superior one. He is the final word to the old system, to the old way of doing things. The whole book is less a letter and more of a homily, an extended sermon, where the author is preaching to his hearers, this is Jesus, the one that you've been waiting for. He is the final word that I've been saying all in the Old Testament, that the entire Old Testament has been pointing to. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. When we come to this portion in Hebrews chapter 4, 
he's beginning, he's ending an initial section where he's just talking about how Jesus is greater than Moses generally, and how the Israelites were, were trying to find their ultimate rest. And he's transitioning to a section where he's talking about the high priesthood of Jesus. Jesus is greater than the old, the, all the system, the rituals, the rites, the sacrifices, everything that you had been doing. Jesus is not only greater than that, but he's the fulfillment. So when we come here, the main point of this particular section, these couple of verses that opens the next several chapters in Hebrews, is to say that because Jesus is our great high priest, you can live the Christian life. Because Jesus is constantly interceding for us, because he is our great high priest, we can therefore live the Christian life. He draws out two main inferences here that we see in verse 14 and then in verse 16 that we'll be focusing on. Let us hold fast our confession in verse 14, and let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace in verse 16. So beginning with verses four, verse 14, the, these, this section, 14, 15, and 16, essentially has what is two if or since then statements. Since this... Therefore, do this. Paul does this a lot. Um, I'm not terribly convinced Paul's the author of Hebrews, but I'm not going to really get into that. Everybody has their own theories. Um, but here, he's saying, since this, therefore, let us do this. Let us hold fast our confession. We have a, since we have, then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, to unpack exactly what this means, let's look a little bit at the context in which this is found. As I mentioned earlier, the theme of Jesus is greater is one of the ones that's the main one that's developed through the book of Hebrews. If you, if you start and read it, were to read it one chunk, you would say, oh, Jesus is greater than this. And you can almost list the, the outline probably of the, the preacher sermon here that wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, now, one of the things that will come from that is if Jesus is greater than all the old system and all the, the old covenant, and the Hebrews fell away, then is there a stronger warning for us? And so alongside of this great Jesus is greater section, we also have continuous strong warnings. You know, if you look at the beginning of 2, it says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The argument there is clearly one from lesser to greater. If this happened back then and it was attested by angels, how much greater of a punishment will it be if we neglect our own salvation to one that was declared in power by the Son of God? And so you have a a theme of strong warning. The book of Hebrews was 
likely written, I think, to the, to the Hebrews in the diaspora, the Hebrews, unlike Paul, has no formal introduction. So a lot of Paul's letters have, has a formal introduction. I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus to the, to the whoever. Hebrews does not have a formal introduction, so we draw from inference some of the details around it. And so I think, based off of a lot of the Old Testament quotations being from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, that the preacher is preaching to someone who knew the Greek version of the Old Testament very well and was intimate with the details. If you start to look through this, these are a lot of details that maybe your average hearer wouldn't get. And this would also explain his further interest in explaining the superiority of Jesus in the new covenant to the old. Thus, we see that Jesus, or that the, the, the preacher is arguing that um, that he is, Jesus is superior to the old covenant and its contents. The point in this chapter, the author, as I have explained before, is transitioning to the high priesthood of Jesus, to, and it's his superiority to the Levitical system. This transition comes in yet another section where he's warning against essentially falling away. 3 and 4 through 4.13, you have, he, you have an extended section where he quotes Psalm 95 multiple times. For example, 3.7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is another section against warning about holding fast to the confession. The Hebrews did not. Many of them, as we see. Um... The Israelites, the section this is referring to, Psalm 95 is referring to one of the sections where the people of Israel were complaining about lack of water. Now, this was a people that had just seen the Lord intervene mightily on their behalf. They were slaves not, ma- not many years prior to that, and yet God delivered them, struck the Egyptians with a plague, drowned the army in the Red, Red Sea, allowed them to cross, and they were worried about water. And so, they were faithless, and they did not cling to the confession. They did not hold fast to what they had seen God do. This transition in this portion of Scripture begins to discuss Jesus as our great mediator and high priest. If the people like that had seen God work so closely in His miracles, could ultimately ignore his, his work in their lives. How are we to persevere? Is the author to Hebrews just telling us to, you know, just try harder? Just pull yourself up and keep trucking? And this is where we get the idea of Jesus' priesthood and his intercessory work in our behalf. The idea of rest in the, in the Old Testament and what this section brings up in chapters 3 is one of expanding horizons, as one author puts it. 
You have the people of Israel waiting for their land. They get there, and then Joshua says that God had given them all the land that he had promised to them. And then what do we find in the very next book? Judges, they're constantly in and out, being ruled by some other country. They don't actually find permanent rest. Ultimately, as we read through the prophets, and we've read a number from the prophets, they're ultimately sent into exile. And so what we come to here in chapters 3 and 4 is the preacher is saying, here's how you get to your permanent rest. This, is the, this was the temporary rest that your fathers had sought. How do we get to permanent, eternal rest? And what does he do to both end this section and begin the new section? Point to Jesus the great high priest, because it is only by his work, by his intercessory work on our behalf, that we can reach eternal rest. It's only by that. There's always potential for the Hebrews to lose their land, and they did. But in this portion of Scripture, we start to see how we can get eternal rest. How do we hold fast to our confession and do as we are instructed to? How can we have this rest? The basis that we're told is, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So he gives us the basis first. How do we hold fast to our confession? Because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. The first thing to notice is that the word for great high priest is sort of a redundancy. You can't hear it here, but... The word for high priest is one word, and they add another word for great. And so essentially, it's sort of like the author to the Hebrews is saying, the great, great high priest, or the highest high priest, or something along those lines. He's making a distinction between Jesus as the highest high priest that there is, between other priests, because other high priests, there were many of them. And there are a lot of them that weren't so great. As a matter of fact, the ones that we read in the New Testament are the ones that were involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. Obviously, they weren't top-notch. There are some other folks, too. Even in Aaron's line, two of his sons were struck dead for doing what God had told, offering strange fire, doing what he had told them not to do, or not doing what he had specifically commanded However, we're not only told that the reason that we can hold fast to our confession is because we have the highest high priest, but because he has passed through the heavens. What does this mean? I think there's at least a couple of significances to this phrase, passed through the heavens. First, he's saying Jesus' sacrifice is acceptable. It's made it to the heavens. If you're, if, you're a pers- if you're a Hebrew and you see your sacrifices year after year, you see the smoke, you see the incense burning up, but you don't know. I mean, you trust in the promises of God, you trust what he says, but you, it's, it's not in the heavens. Your high priest is standing before you. Maybe you see, see bad things he's done, maybe you know him personally. A second significance that this has is we have one who is there. The high priest had access to the Holy of Holies once a year. And then there were people outside listening in case he wasn't purified 
and was struck dead entering the Holy of Holies. Passed through the heavens is saying that Jesus' sacrifice is acceptable and he is standing, is sitting at the right hand of the Father right now. His priesthood does not end, but he is there interceding for us on our behalf. That's something, some a kind of access that they didn't have. Um, we have one who has been there, came back, and went back again. Um, in the Lord of the Rings, after the fellowship splits, which I like, appreciate the Lord of the Rings, um, you have two hobbits who are from this pretty insular part of Middle Earth, don't really go anywhere. Sam and Frodo, who are tasked with destroying the ring in uh, Mount Doom. And once they split, all the people who actually were warriors and probably kind of knew the maps went a different direction. And you have two hobbits, Sam and Frodo, who probably hadn't really ventured outside of, outside of the Shire, hadn't really been out anywhere. They were the ones that were wondering, supposed to wander around Mordor to destroy the ring. Um, now what did they need? They needed somebody who had been there. They needed somebody who had destroyed it. They, you know, they're, Sauron's not out making maps and handing them out to people. You're welcome to Mount Doom. Um, they needed somebody to guide them. And if, if you read the story, or you've read the story, and you, or if you've watched the movies, um, they eventually find someone, an old nemesis, who is uh, questionable integrity. And... I won't spoil it for you, but they find someone who knows the way there, and they find someone that can kind of guide them to Mount, to Mount Doom. The author of Hebrews, when he's saying that Jesus has passed through the, through the heavens, is emphasizing that Jesus had been there. The action of Jesus, as opposed to the actions of the great high priests, of the old high priests, is that Jesus had been there, he went back to the Father, and he has permanent access to the Father. Familiarity with the Old Testament, again, it brings us to light. He had the Holy of Holies. You couldn't go there very often. Once a year. Or rather, we have a great high priest who ascends straight to the heavens and is now seated at God, the hand of God the Father Almighty. Hebrews 6, 19 through 20 says that we have, and this is related uh, to one of the songs that we sang, we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Each week, millions of Christians recite the Apostles' Creed, acknowledging the fact that on the third day he rose to, arose again, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the hand, right hand of God the Father Almighty. We hear stuff in Hebrews 4, and we can draw inferences that Christ is now seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us. But how frequently does this bolster our faith? What does this do for us? The purpose of this isn't just to, oh, hey, that's cool. The purpose of this is to help us to go on. Because we know even if I'm not repenting, 
Jesus is interceding for me. Jesus is praying for me. Jesus tells his apostles that he has not lost one of them, save Judas, save the son of perdition. And this was because he had prayed for them. He keeps his people. He is the great high priest, the son of God. And this, it says that right after the, since he has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. This is the first explicit place in this book of Hebrews where he puts the two titles side by side. Jesus, the Son of God. We see Jesus separately and we see the Son of God and referencing his divinity. And here he explains that Jesus, the Son of God, is our great high priest. The point is that our high priest is divine and has direct access to God. What is this confession that we are supposed to hold? What is this talking about? It says, let us, therefore, let us hold fast to our confession. Uh, Hebrews, beginning of Hebrews 3 and verse 1, it says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. The confession is not just the content of our faith, though I think it definitely includes that. It's not just, oh, I, you know, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. It's not just that, although that's often what we think about when we think about a, a confession. But it's also referring to the act of confessing. You see, the Israelites, um, they recited and they knew the content of their faith, and yet they did not always follow that. They did not always follow what God had told them to do. Um, Later on in the book, we see another exhortation in Hebrews 10, telling us to hold fast to our confession without wavering. And this is, again, exhorting us to that when in our confession and in our faith, we need to cling on to that. In our act of public profession, as it gets increasingly more difficult to hold, we need to cling, we need to hold, our, hold fast our confession. What is this, the encouragement to us? When you hear the word hold fast, you, ought, you probably think of clinging on, sort of like if you're helping someone move and you're tasked with carrying a heavy piece of furniture, and you get towards the end, and you're starting to lose your grip, and what do you do? You readjust, you try to grip on tighter in hopes you don't drop it. Um, that's not really what Hebrews, that's not what he's telling us to do. It's not a pull yourself up, just try harder, keep kicking, keep a stiff upper lip. It's not that kind of a thing. What he's encouraging us with is that because Jesus is our intercessor, is our great high priest. We can hold fast to our confession. His tenure is unending. We think often of his kingship as being unending, but how often do we think of his priestly work on our behalf as being unending? He prays for us. And because of that, we can firmly trust the divine providences behind the circumstances that fall into our lives. Jesus is not unacquainted with those. 
He's not somebody that's far off. He is with us. He's with His people. And even as we pray our you know, sin-twisted prayers, He is perfectly praying for us. So I don't want you to go away thinking, oh, He just told me to live better. Okay, guys, live better. Um, what I'm telling you is you have a great high priest who intercedes for you. This basis should give you an encouragement to keep on going because He is interceding for us. And if, if he is interceding for us, that means he is also empowering us to do his work. He moves on here from, from saying that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens to verse 15 through 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy to find and find grace to help in time of need. We move on from language of divinity and Jesus' unending sonship, mediator, high priesthood. And this might cause us to think, if he is divine, if he is God, I mean, how does he know where I've been? Does he know how I've been? Does he know how hard it is to wake up, to keep going, to motivate yourself, to live the Christian life when you go to work and you see everybody else living however they please? Does he know how hard that is? But then we get to verse 15. We do not have one who is unacquainted with our weaknesses. He's not too far or too far beyond us to capably intercede for us. He's been here. He's He's had no place to lay his head. He's suffered with hunger and starve and um, sleeplessness and all the same sorts of things that we have. You know, sometimes I think we think about Jesus as if everybody's like sort of like everybody's complaining about how hard a test was, and then the smartest guy in the class comes along and goes, "Oh yeah, that was hard," and you're like, "Really? You think that was hard?" <laughs> um. But no, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews wants to demonstrate that Jesus is able to sympathize with us. He starts off with a contrast. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect tempted as we are yet without sin. The idea of sympathy here is one of someone who experiences with you. It's not just a psychological, oh, I know what you're going through. I can, I can portray that. I can imagine what you're, what's going on in your life. It's, I've walked where you walked. Um, I grew up as a missionary kid, and I didn't realize how strange my upbringing was until I came back here. <laughs> um, and you think, you think your experiences are kind of normal when you're growing up most of the time, and then you go to college and meet other people that have moved across town once or moved a couple of times. And, you know, I lived in four different countries by the time I was eight. And so you think, and then you realize, oh, hey, they have a whole name for this. It's a third culture kid. There's an entire group of people that are like this. And so then you, you come back and you feel, first you feel strange because you're not really at home in your home culture, in the U.S. culture. 
You're also not real. You're also always a foreigner wherever you are. Um, it's hard to not feel like a foreigner when I grew up in an Asian country and a six, um, a six four, very large white guy, and um, you always feel out of place. <laughs> but then you come back and you see a lot of other people that can't really sympathize. They can kind of portray, imagine what it would be like, and then you run across to somebody else. Somebody else that was, you know, maybe their parents were in the military, maybe their parents were missionaries like mine, and they don't have all the exact same experiences. Like, no, no two experiences are alike, but you have enough of the same sort of traits, the same sorts of experiences. Like, oh yeah, this guy, he, uh, he understands. He understands where I've been. They may not have done all the same exact things you have, but they understand. When you get this, Jesus, it's not like, you know, Jesus didn't have all the same exact struggles we did. He has the same sorts. He had the same sorts. So obviously there wasn't the internet and that kind of stuff. But he is one who has been, in every respect, tempted as we are, yet without sin. What are the sorts of weaknesses he experiences? He experienced the same sort of weaknesses of mortal human nature that we do. He's tired, external evils, temptation. We read that he was tempted by the devil. Um, as the author of Hebrews later ex- explain, uh, the high priest also could sympathize with us, but he was with sin. So this is where the important modifier comes in, that Jesus suffered. He was, sim- able to un- he was not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who is in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. The high priest is one that would always struggle with his sinfulness. Part of the sins that he was atoning for on the day of atonement were his own. The holiest of high priests would always have those issues, those struggles with sin. But in Jesus, we don't have that. We have the perfect God-man who committed no sins though he himself endured all the same kinds of struggles. Now, what is the conclusion that he draws from this? Then shrink in fear? Then uh, be very worried because Jesus has been, but he did it successfully and you didn't? Is that the conclusion he draws? No, he says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He tells us to come boldly. Jesus is a high priest who sympathizes with us and whose sacrifice is perfect, and we do not have to be afraid to approach him. He was sinless, and we can boldly come before him. His sacrifice was perfect. His righteousness is ours. He is called our righteousness, our sanctification. Jesus' Jesus' death fulfills what we needed to fulfill. And a similar idea emerges in chapter 7 when we read that he he is consequently able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Our boldness stems from the fact that Christ has torn the veil and opened access to the Father. 
because he has sympathized with our weaknesses, but without sin, his righteousness is ours. His sacrifice is perfect. Our consciences are clear, not because of what we've done or what we've not done, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. The contrast cannot be more vivid with the Hebrew believer. I've mentioned a couple times already, but it was limited to access once a year. God is not less holy now. It's not like God has lowered his standards. Well, he couldn't really keep these, so let's make them a little lower. We read that. You can find that out if you just start reading through the book of Acts. You get to chapter, I think it's four or five, and Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead pretty much at the outset of the church. God's standards hasn't fallen, but you are righteous because we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. The law is meant to drive you to the unending fountain of the stores of God's grace. But too often we are way too timid about approaching the throne of grace because we think that God is like us. And yet God in Christ has opened the fountains of mercy for us. We can come boldly and draw near to the throne of grace because it is a throne of grace. We don't have to be wor- we don't have to worry. We don't have to fret that we've not been good enough. But we can come before him. Whenever you find the need for the help of the Lord, you will find open access to mercy and grace there for you. It doesn't matter what it is. Robert Murray McShane said, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And I think um, what the author of Hebrews here is saying is we should be bold in our prayers. Come before him boldly because he is our intercessor. He has not stopped praying for us. His session never ends. You don't have to worry what he will say to you because he is praying for you. In conclusion, let me end with a couple of applications. First, stand fast. As we've discovered both from the example of the people of Israel and from the exhortation of the author of Hebrews, standing firm is more than just loudly boasting or being argumentative. That's not really standing firm. Rather, it involves the grace of a Lord who has gone straight to the heavens who is there, who is interceding for us, is an unwavering commitment to him. Faith in Hebrews 11 is clinging on to the promises of God even though we hadn't seen them fully opened yet. Abraham's offered his only son, and the book of Hebrews tells us not because he thought God would save him, but because he believed in God who raises the dead. That's some kind of faith. Faith is a commitment to to the Lord who we've seen raised from the dead, live a sinless life, and we know he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. It's not a pull yourself up by your own bootstrap sort of endurance. It's trusting in God and in the Son whose, whose sacrifice is acceptable and worthy. Related to this, let me regularly encourage you to repent of your sins. 
we are told in Romans that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that can't be uttered or understood. And um, we are told here, and it's implied that Jesus Christ the righteous is interceding for us. How much more should we repent daily of our sins? Many of the old liturgies and ways of praying involves starting out with a repentance of sin. One of the things that this should encourage you, that if Christ is praying for you, do you think he won't forgive you of your sins? He will. He has. We are righteous because we have been forgiven. Therefore, repent of your sins. God knows them. Jesus is praying for us. He told Peter that he was, but I have prayed for you. Right after he told him he would deny him. Do you think he wouldn't forgive you? So repent of your sins and come to the Savior. No one is perfect but our Savior. And he has given us his righteousness. And finally, let me encourage us to pray and intercede for others. Jesus sympathizes with us. He's walked where we walked. He cares. At the tomb of Lazarus, he wept for his friend. He was angry at the thought of death. He cares about our problems. He's interceding for us and for our problems. So bring others before the throne of grace. Come boldly. There you will find stores of mercy and grace for you. They are unending because God is an infinite God filled with boundless stores of grace and mercy for us. He has already opened those stores when he died on the cross, was raised, and ascended into heaven to make intercession for us. So as we approach Easter, let me encourage you, Christ has ripped open the veil He has conquered death, and in Him, we have access to the Father. So let me encourage you to make use of it. Come before Him and worship Him as God's people ought to. Let's pray. Almighty Father, we thank You that we can come before You. We thank You that You are merciful to us that you are good to us, and that we can trust you. We pray that you would help us throughout the week, that you would keep us, as we know it is only by your grace. We are not holding on to you, but you are holding on to us. Help us to resist sin and to follow you closely. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.